0: Hello and welcome to this edition of the Business Excellence Podcast. My name is Rael Bricker coming to you from Perth, Western Australia. And with me is my co-host from Brisbane, Australia, Lindsay Adams. Hello and welcome. And with us from California is David Fraden. Uh, welcome David.
1: Well, thanks for having me. Um, I'm coming to you from Silicon Valley and today is the 50th anniversary of the naming of the valley.
2: Wow. So, David, okay. you've you've had an interesting history and uh, a lot of experience in Silicon Valley. And, you know, your specialty is product success. You've written seven books on the topic. Uh, how
1: did you get into that? Tell us a bit about your background. Uh, I was trained as a uh, product manager at Hewlett Packard, which uh, developed the field of product management. Actually, I prefer to call it product success management because that better explains the responsibilities of the millions of product managers around the world. And uh, so I was a classically trained uh, product manager building on the model of brand management that Dave Packard and Bill Hewlett borrowed uh, from Procter & Gamble, uh, and uh, then deployed it in the the area of uh, technology uh, for managing uh, predominantly high-tech products, but it's now useful for pretty much any product and service uh, worldwide.
0: And so, so David, so so from there, you, I mean, HP have always been, you know, HP as a training ground in technology was amazing. Um, and from there, I believe you joined Apple in the very early days and you took that classical HP training with you.
1: That's correct. Uh, HP recruited me, uh, excuse me, Apple recruited me uh, to come to work for them because I had been trained uh, as a classical HP product manager. Uh, Apple recognized early on the, the great value of uh, product management. Uh, in fact, Steve Wozniak worked for a while at HP as, a, uh, as an engineer. And uh, the thing they recruited me for was to bring the first hard disk drive to market on an Apple 3 personal computer. Uh, and it was a tremendous product. It was uh, had a lot of storage space, mm-hmm. about five megabytes. And it five cost- megabytes. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. That's hilarious. Yeah, it was really cheap. It was only thirty five hundred dollars. Oh, uh, but people, people at the time could not fathom ever having a need to store that much stuff uh, digitally. <laughs> it contained uh, forty three times the uh, capacity of those disk drives that you had on your uh, Radio Shack uh, yep. computer. Bought the same year I joined uh, Apple. And because of my background prior to joining uh, HP, uh, I had uh, was running uh, an environmental balance organization in Minnesota, had 225 uh, farmer, labor, and business groups funding it, uh, pioneered the field of environmental mediation to resolve environmental disputes. And before that, I worked on high technology issues in Washington, DC on behalf of a nationwide student organization that I had founded. And in between, I ran a gubernatorial campaign and a presidential campaign in the state of Minnesota. Uh, So a lot of those skills developed in those areas of experience of technology, public policy. Uh, I'm a trained uh, engineer from the University of Michigan. Uh, Enabled me to uh, move into the role of product management. And then they asked me to take over the Apple III product line as the business unit manager. They didn't want to call me the, the general manager. They preferred to call me the business unit manager, or BUM for short, and uh, (laughs) gave me uh, full authority and full responsibility for the product line uh, because it was floundering uh, at the time and they thought I could possibly uh, make some money off of it, which I did, and it was enough money to employ about 1500 Apple employees and also fund the development of the Macintosh. So I was at the same management level at Apple as uh, Steve Jobs was at that time. Wow. So,
2: so, David, let's let's fast forward to the future, or right to today, because product management—it's universal, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, you just talked about running a political campaign. You worked in IT, but product management is relevant to all business, isn't it?
1: So, I very much. Know. In fact, um, I wrote a book. Uh, it's actually a little pamphlet. It's only seven hundred ninety-six pages long, called <laughs> "Successful Product Design and uh, Management Toolkit" uh, for Wiley. Uh, Wiley published it in in, uh, India, and then through their NXT program, they're offering a seven-month executive education program on product management uh, with that uh, pamphlet as the uh, foundation for uh, the course. Um, And about five, six years ago, uh, a number of uh, startups occurred in India, about 7,000 of them. About 95% of them failed. But now, as a result of that, there's a general understanding in India that uh, getting trained as a product manager is very important for product success. So okay. this seven-month curriculum is being offered through IIML, uh, which I never heard of before. But in India, it's a very prestigious uh, business school. And wow. they, uh, uh, the first cohort, we had uh, about 125 students and the second one, which just got started, has over uh, 75 students. So yeah, the, the uh, importance of good product success management has spread very rapidly around the world over the last 10 years. And part of the, another part of the reason for that is about 40% of all products that are developed and introduced fail in the marketplace primarily because they're missing one or more of the five keys to uh, product success that I talk about in my courses and in my uh, books.
0: You talk of your book that you you said that um, your book, um, one of your books specifically deals with the five um, keys to uh, steps to product success or the five keys to product success. And um, what is that book? That is Building Insanely Great Products, published, published by Wiley as well.
1: No, no, this is self-published uh, on Amazon, and it's available as an Amazon book and a Kindle book uh, worldwide, including in uh, in Vietnamese, because the Vietnamese market is one of the fastest growing uh, economies of the world. And they are actually building a $31 million innovation center now uh, to, in order to for foster innovation uh, uh, for uh, their markets there. Um, and this term, building insanely great products, is uh, something that Steve used to talk about frequently, so I was, I'm plagiarizing on his title.
2: Okay, so what, what are the 5 keys then? I'm, you know, you got me. I'm curious. What are the 5 keys to product success? I mean, is that something you can rattle
1: off quickly for us? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's very easy. It's uh, the first letter of the, the first name of my company, which is Spice Catalyst. So the keys are S-P-I-C-E. Uh, the first one for uh, S is strategy. You need to have a product market strategy uh, before you start the development of your product. And that includes about 32 key components ranging for what is your product going to do for the customer? What's the value proposition for the product? What's targeted market personas are you going after, including business to business or business consumer, uh, product positioning, market research, competitive research, uh, pricing strategy, support, uh, uh, service strategy, trading strategy, uh, sales strategy, that type of thing. uh, So that's what the S stands for. P stands for people uh, that you have in your company. I've identified in the Wiley book, uh, 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 product design and uh, successful management, which is also available on Amazon worldwide. Uh, It's not very expensive. It's um, almost as expensive as the hard disk drive or $10. And um, (laughs) it it talks about 130 competencies that an organization has to have either within the organization for product success or shared between the organization and outside consultants. So that's the P, S-P, I stands for information. Product managers need to have information about who is their customers, what their customers want to do, how satisfied are they with the current solutions that are out there and so forth in order to make good uh, product uh, decisions. Uh, The C stands for communications, the ability to communicate with your team, with your customer, uh, uh, with your previous customers, with your new customers and so forth. And uh, the last has to deal with having systems available in order to get the job done. And I describe all of that on my website uh, spicecatalyst.com, and go into more detail in building and selling great products. Okay.
0: okay so, so I guess the question is then. Okay, you, you also mentioned something to me when we were chatting earlier, which is about one trillion lost on failed products. So, so, so is it because people are coming up with. know building the better mousetrap because they woke up in the middle of the night and found a design for a better mousetrap and haven't really thought through the rest of it or you know at what level are people actually um you know at when are they making the decisions to do you know that this is a good product you know what is the process that takes you so you've got those five steps but but I'm going to a bit more practical level because I see it, I was in venture capital. I saw people knocking on the door every day with a new idea and a new product. And, you know, what, what distinguishes something at a broad level? And you've looked at hundreds of, and thousands of products. What distinguishes it at a broad level between something with, with, with a successful potential and something that's doomed to failure?
1: Yeah, I teach a, te- a technique which I call do, understanding what it is that your customer wants to do. Mm-hmm. Why do they want to do it? When do they want to do it? Where do they want to do it? How do they want to do it? Uh, what, how important is getting that thing done? Uh, and how satisfied are they with the current solution? And you have to find, according to Tony Ulrich of uh, Synergum, who teaches outcome-based uh, innovation, and uh, built upon the Harvard professor's series of books on the same topic of outcome-based innovation and uh, Tony talks about jobs to be done. He has found in his research that if a product doesn't fit at least 15 unmet needs, it's not going to be successful. So it's not good enough just to have an idea for a product. For example, I was just reading an article uh, earlier today that one of my instructors shared with me where the garage door company Chamberlain during the pandemic, has now invented a pet door that you can put in your home, and when the dog comes up near to the pet door, the door opens, and the pet can jump through the door, and then it closes, and then when they come back to the door, two high-definition cameras recognize the dog, and the door opens up again, I guess, to keep the possums out of the house. Uh, wow. So they thought this whole thing through, so that, should it be a door sliding up and down or left and right, should it be an infrared sensor, should it be cameras, should it be uh, all sorts of things. And they just introduced it um, and it's going to cost a mere $3,000. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I've never seen a door in my life that's worth $3,000 unless it's made out of Tiffany
0: diamonds. And they- However, let me ask. Let me ask you the question. You said possum, so not a big problem in Australia, or at least not in this part of Australia. But, but if it is a problem, a possum could do significant damage inside your house.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, they, uh, they priced it at $3,000, and apparently they did not bother to do any market research in terms of the elasticity of demand. Uh, that door would cost more than my garage door and the Chamberlain door close, garage door closer combined. So that was the point I was driving at. Yeah, and there are, that, that's cheaper, yeah, there are other cheaper uh, dog doors for about $100 that you can get uh, that will keep the possums out.
2: I okay. suspect that uh, uh, most people are going to go for the $100 special rather than the $3,000. <laughs> so it's, it's critical then to do this research to figure out what your customer actually wants before you go exactly. buying a, uh, something that they're never going to buy.
1: Yeah, I'll give you another example of that in the low-tech area of restaurants. I have a friend of mine that wants to open a restaurant, and they had a restaurant before it failed. They hadn't yet figured out why they failed what they did wrong. Uh, So I recommended to them that they do some market research by putting together a flyer stand out on the street corner near where they plan, they're thinking of opening the restaurant, and this is kind of doing a traffic study too, hand out a flyer and ask people to answer a few questions on an online survey about the restaurant that they're proposing. And things like, uh, what's the likelihood they would eat there? How often would they eat? Uh, what do they think of the menu? What do they think of the prices on the menu? Would they want to new takeout? Would they like delivery? Would they like the uh, meals catered and so forth? And at the same time, gather uh, people's uh, email address and phone numbers so that they can be sent uh, uh, daily specials and that type of thing. And in exchange for answering that survey, for doing that market research, uh, the, the restaurant owner can offer like a 10% discount uh, on their next meal that they buy. So there's an incentive in there uh, yeah. for them to take a few minutes to answer the questionnaire. Uh, this, of course, is something they did not do when the first restaurant was opened. And it turned out it turned out uh, opened up in a low-traffic area, and as a result, they just did not have the walk-by traffic in order to be successful.
2: Wow. So the research part is, is a critical piece. Yeah. Um, you talked about, uh, you know, who's your customer and and how satisfied are they? Um, so how do you identify who is your customer and, and you know, um, how do you go through that process? I mean, I'm thinking, you know, most of our listeners are probably small to medium enterprises, limited budgets. Um, you know, they're, they're interested in what you're talking about. But uh, again, spending money is going to
1: be a challenge, particularly with COVID. You know, it's impacted a lot of revenue flows. Um, yeah, the traditional market segments, like you just mentioned, small to medium business, um, small office, home office, uh, enterprises, and so forth. Uh, then there's also uh, demographics that can be used to segment the markets and within that you have certain personas Uh, going back to this uh, restaurant example which is an easy one to use because everyone can relate to it Uh, their personas is people that worked in the offices nearby it's uh, uh, older people that want to go out and eat and socialize um, and transient people like delivery people and so forth so by You you figure this out by examining yourself and by doing uh, the surveys and the interviews that I mentioned earlier in order to find out what it is that uh, people want to do. And uh, if you can come up with unique segmentation, uh, then your chances for success is even better. There's another field called graphics which has been around uh, about 10, 15 years. And this is aggregating data from like Hoover's and Dun & Brand Street. I don't know if they have that in Australia. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so they have more data about the nature of the enterprise. Like it may be a branch office with 20 employees of a major uh, Fortune 100 corporation. Uh, there was a sales group in uh, Cisco that used Firmographics to try to figure out which Cisco products the sales group in Germany should be pushing uh, or marketing and selling in their territory. And as a result of that, they were able to increase their sales by about 60% over the previous year. Uh, Another way to do that is just examine yourself. Like the fellow that uh, started Uber uh, lived in Los Angeles and you could almost never get a taxi down there. And frequently, if you called a taxi, the taxi would never show up. And it was hard to get a hold of the dispatch. So he was thinking, wow, we now have these smartphones that can connect people that are driving around with people that are looking for a ride and hence Uber was invented. Uh, if he was in New York City or Washington, D.C., where I used to live, uh, if you just walked down the street, uh, the way you hail a taxi, you stick your finger in the air. Uh, so if you scratched your nose in Washington, about 10 taxis would pull up. Uh, <laughs> if he was living there, he never would have had that problem. So as a result uh that notion of examining the problem that you have yourself. And a lot of companies are started uh out of that need.
2: That's that's really interesting. I was I was reading in the newspaper here this morning about um a fly in, fly out worker. It's a, a woman drives trucks in a in a mine and so she's away for a week, 10 days at a time. She rents her car um on a on an Uber kind of basis um while she's You know, at the mine working, so her car is earning money rather than sitting in the garage or sitting in the parking lot. Uh, And I thought, wow, that's that's a really interesting
1: uh, approach. Yeah, that uh, approach is something that um, is going to accelerate over the next five years with uh, uh, automated uh, uh, driverless uh, vehicles. Uh, We already have a bunch of them on campuses and in cities uh, around Silicon Valley. That uh, pick up your food from the grocery store, waddles down the uh, sidewalk, uh, crosses the street, and um, brings it up to your front door. Uh, then we have to just get it to hop through the dog door that you put in for three thousand.
2: <laughs> 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 and then come and serve it on your on your kitchen table.
1: <laughs> I put the shrimp in the freezer. Uh, so I, I my lead customer is Cisco. I teach their product managers worldwide. And I've taught about a third of their uh, product managers. That's probably the reason why over the last 10 years, their stock price has gone up about 30%. Uh, and uh, uh, they, uh, they are always engaged in trying to understand what it is that their customer wants to do and has to build products for them.
2: So, so what do you reckon is the key thing for, for any of our listeners? What, what's the first step they should take? To, to tune into product management?
1: First step is to start writing the product market strategy. Uh, and that starts with what I've already talked about, understanding what it is that their customer wants to do. And by the way, the uh, the window of opportunity for a product or a service, by the way, a service is nothing more than an intangible product, uh, is when you've identified 15 unmet needs. And then you need to go to the Boston Consulting Group, Cash Cal. Uh, uh, approach uh, and shut down the product uh, when those 1,500 met needs are being well satisfied by other uh, products that are on the marketplace. I didn't know this back in 2003 when uh, I invented the concept of advertising on cell phones. And uh, RCN Magazine uh, gave me credit for shipping the first ad on a cell phone. Wow. Um, but um, No one recognized that. In fact, I went to a number of venture capitalists, about 200 of them, trying to raise some startup capital, and I couldn't find a single VC that understood marketing, advertising, cell phones, and uh, cell phone games because I was doing embedded advertising and cell phone games. Uh, And um, I I went out of business in 2006, about a year before the the iPhone came out, which would have enabled what I was doing.
2: Wow. Uh,
1: Last Check you know, a few years ago, it's over a fifteen billion dollar a year industry, advertising on cell phones. You just a couple of, He's a hideous ton Mike. I had my time because the unmet need was not there yet, and I didn't recognize the fact that I needed to look for that.
0: Yeah, the unmet. that's vent- uh, So, talking of unmet needs, I have to go way back in your history, and 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 heading, you know, uh, probably the last uh area but it it takes us off product management for a second but it's an area that i'm passionate about the university of michigan flyers okay um i have a private pilot's license or it it, it, i'm not current at the moment but i have i have done a, a fair amount of flying and one of my colleagues at work is actually a a flying instructor um and um my last uh, flight that I took was in a 1952 boomerang. Ah. A friend of mine does formation flying and um, has a couple boomerangs. And that was the last time I flew a plane was in 1952 boomerang. So, um, what, wh- where is that passion for flying? And is it still something that drives you today?
1: A little bit. Uh, I, uh, uh, when I, I graduated from Cass Technical High School, which was uh, Otters High School in Detroit. Uh, built on the go-go years of the 1950s in the automotive industry. So the smartest person from each of the junior colleges would go to Cass Tech. And uh, I easily got into University of Michigan, which at the time was uh, one of the 10 best colleges in in, in the world uh, in aerospace engineering. And after about three weeks in the dorm, I was bored to death and started wandering around, which is uh, one of the techniques that HP uses, which is called management by wandering around. I saw a little poster uh, announcing a organizational meeting uh, for a potential flying club. And I was kind of shocked that the huge University of Michigan, uh, with 40,000 students and a pretty good football team, didn't have a flying club. Uh, so I started it. The uh, other three or four people that were involved, they dropped out. And uh, we just had a reunion a few years ago. I went back And the head uh, pilot of the Blue Angels uh, uh, got his license through my flying club. Uh, And standing around were a bunch of corporate pilots and also airline pilots from uh, uh, United and America and Southwest and so forth, all of which had gotten their training uh, at the University of Michigan Flyers. And as of that time, we had trained over 4,000 pilots. Uh, By the time I graduated from college, Four years later, we had twenty-five airplanes, and we we're doing about 40 million, uh, $4 dollars in uh, aircraft rentals a year. Uh, I had gotten my uh, flight instructor's rating, and I worked my last couple of years through college as a flight instructor.
0: That's fantastic. I love, I love that. So, so, so your your history from the you know the early seventies has been driven, or late sixties has been driven by entrepreneurship and, and, and finding a need. And I think that that you live your, you live your philosophy. Very painful. <laughs> well, David, I've got one on
2: the clock. We're going to uh, – we're pretty much out of time. For our listeners who want to connect with you, find you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Well, several ways. One is uh, they can send me an email at dave at spicecandles.com. Or they could look up my LinkedIn profile under uh, David Freight and uh, ask to connect and send me a message that way. They can follow me on Twitter, but I'm afraid Trump will shut that down.
0: (laughs) (laughs) David, thank you very much for being a guest on our show today. And this is Railbricker and Lindsay Adams signing off for another episode of the Business Excellence Podcast.